I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of June 12th, 2017. On this week's show, we'll talk about the Golden State Warriors NBA Finals triumph over the Cleveland Cavaliers and what it means for Kevin Durant, LeBron James, the NBA, the United States, and the world. Upon the occasion of the U.S. soccer team's 1-1 draw in Mexico on Sunday night, we'll also be joined by George Dorman to discuss the team's 18-year-old star Christian Pulisic. And the one and only Ice Cube will be here for a conversation about the new ESPN 30 for 30 documentary Celtics Lakers, Best of Enemies, and the news that 3-on-3 basketball will be in the 2020 Olympics. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. <laughs> Hi, Stefan. Uh, a heads up that we originally recorded the podcast on Monday. We then came back on Tuesday morning to re-record our NBA segment to document the Warriors win in Game 5 of the Finals. On Monday, we talked to Kevin Arnovitz, and you'll still hear Kevin in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members. For our updated, brand new Warriors Are Champions segment, it is my great pleasure to welcome the host of The Gist to the microphone. It's Mike Pesca. Hello, old friend. Hi. I misunderstood the intro, and I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I didn't watch that Ice Cube documentary. <laughs> I thought I would be ro- – which is fine. We could just roll and talk about NWA, but I, was, I got nothing on the soccer. <laughs> Did you watch the basketball game? Th- that I did, yes, yes. All right, so the just, Warriors... Just in, just in a precursor for the uh, 30 for 30, 30 years from there. <laughs> All right, just in case you're faking it and you didn't watch, the Warriors mm. won 129 to 120. Mm. It was game five. They overcame the... Um, a lot of adversity. A lot of adversity. It's the toughest lead in sports is three to one. And they, they overcame the, uh, the 3-1 lead uh, being a 3-1 deficit. So um, this is Kevin Durant's first title. That's a major storyline. It's the Warriors' second in three years. LeBron James lost a championship, Mm -hmm. which is unacceptable, although he did average a triple-double. I'm giving you a lot of potential storylines to Mm -hmm. riff off of here, Mike, to kind of get you back in in rhythm. Where where do you want to go with this? 
Uh, Kevin Durant's mother chose not to wear an off-the-shoulder frock as she <laughs> did when the Thunder were eliminated in 2012. I think that changed the juju. Um, I th- can we start with my feelings? Mm-hmm. I was surprised. I was I was definitely rooting for the Cavaliers to win, uh, not overall, but just to push a series to other games. I had the thought, weirdly, if it was coming to uh, Golden State, which is not a place, but more of a nickname, it was coming to Oakland uh, with the Cavs down 3-1, and the order of getting to 3-1 were like last year's, where the Cavs had won game three. I would be uh, fine with that. I would think they had a chance. But since they went down 3-0, I'm like, oh, they have no chance. That's logically inconsistent. It doesn't make sense. And yet it made sense to me. But lastly, I always rejected. I think we all did the idea of being against this super team. And I thought there was value to it. And I really wanted to see how this season would unfold. And I definitely wanted the uh, Cavaliers to push it to an extra game. But I didn't get much joy at all out of the Warriors winning. And I think just because I was thinking ahead, I was thinking a couple things. I was thinking ahead to, well, what's this going to mean for years to come? The immovable force, the the uh, irresist- sorry, the irresistible force, the immovable object. If the immovable object- The unblockable really, Durant jumper. Yeah. If the, if the immovable object turns out to be movable and the irresistible force is just demonstrably irresistible, that's not conflict. That's not drama. And so I look back at the whole course of the year when people ask the question, can they be stopped? And since the answer was just definitively no, and then I cast ahead to can they be stopped? I don't see why the answer wouldn't be no. I did get a little down on the whole experiment of super teams and warriors in basketball. So Stefan was extremely moved by LeBron James's post-game press conference where he talked about his emotions. I really felt I could relate. Yeah, so... (laughs) I don't know why. So this guy, Jason Lloyd of The Athletic, asked a question to LeBron. Two years ago, you sat at your locker for 45 minutes with a towel over your head after the game ended, and tonight you're you're in here already. Can you just go through your emotions in the moment and how... how It sounds silly how this feels. I love everything I had out on the floor every single game for five five games in his finals, and... um, you know, you come up short. So, I mean, it would be the same if you feel like you wrote the best column of your life and somebody picked another one over you. That's a, how would you feel, you know, Jason? So, you know, you, you wouldn't hold your head down, but you would be like, okay, it's just not my time. So, I mean, I've been there, man. I don't know about you, Mike, but the, what LeBron went through right there, I really felt like that brought it home for me. Um, there was a time back in uh, 97, I wrote a column, editor didn't like it, picked somebody else's column. Rick Riley, right? <laughs> you know, but I, I left it all out there at the 700 words. Every one of those 700 words, I was committed to. What did you take away from LeBron's tone there? Because in a part of the clip that we didn't hear, he talks about how Golden State's been the best team in the league the last three years, which is gracious. And Draymond Green, his statement was the most fascinating of all because he did the thing where he he was like, I amassed this entire file of opposition research on Richard Jefferson that I was that I was going to unleash on the podium. I had this whole plan. But because I'm so magnanimous, I'm not going to tell you all this terrible stuff I know about Richard Jefferson um, because I respect the Cavs too much. So that was great. But what what did you take away from LeBron's sentiments on the podium? I thought LeBron was actually – I thought LeBron actually expressed some – the feeling of inevitability. Like, look, there was nothing I could do. I am surrounded by a bunch of players that could not help me beat this team. There was no way we were going to beat this team. 
And I detected, I mean, this just made me. Me personally. I left it all out on the floor. Me right. personally. And Kyrie too, maybe. <laughs> Everybody else? I don't know. Um, but I did get the feeling that he was not thrilled with Durant going to Golden State. And not just because it made it impossible realistically for the Cavaliers to beat the Warriors, but because there was the sense of, I'm the greatest player that ever lived, and I can't beat these guys, so this league is completely screwed up. Wow, I didn't take it like that at all. First of all, does yeah, uh, <laughs> does the does the op research on Richard De- Jefferson include the bold faced words he cannot shoot a basketball? <laughs> Very good at many aspects of the game, except that one. Um, first of all, I thought that talking to the newspaper columnist in his vernacular shows empathy. Mm-hmm. And second of all, I agree with all his assessments. Um, no, I, I'm talking later in in the uh, in yeah, his yeah. news conference. But I, no, ahead. I agree with his assessment. I mean, try to imagine. Fine, you, you can't. He has everything in the world, and he's better at anything that anyone ever is and ever has been. Fine. And if he can't win, and if he had the series that he had with, you know, the one thing he, it was in Game Three, he he allowed himself to play too much. That he was a little tired, and uh, maybe didn't defend Durant perfectly. Right. So it's like we're talking about 200 minutes of play, and let's fault a minute and a half of his. And the other big fault that he gets blamed for is making really excellent passes to three-point shooters who couldn't knock down a shot. Right. I think in a way he's kind of voicing my frustration, which is that I wanted the Warriors to play this beautiful, excellent basketball and see how it would unfold. When the answer is it's it unfolded and they're unbeatable. That's more than just I'm sad. That's depressing and and hopeless for the future. Right. It's sort it, of this resignation that there's no way to stop this. The Cavaliers scored more points than the Warriors did when LeBron James was playing. I would argue, or at least I think you can make an extremely credible argument that there's a positive story here, which is that basketball is, if not the ultimate team game, it's certainly one of the games where you need to play together to win. And so the idea that the best player in the world who plays at his best can be defeated by a team that is amazing and plays well that together. Has the, that has the second, third, and fourth best players? Well, I mean, if you look at at Purr, I don't know how you feel about Purr these days, Mike, but I was looking at the Purr, the player efficiency rating, and Cleveland had like five of the top eight guys in the series. Kyrie played well for, you know, maybe four-fifths of the series. Mm-hmm. Kevin Love had a bunch of great games. J.R. Smith made seven threes. I mean, it's not like Cleveland... I mean, Cleveland is outgunned because everyone is the league in the league is outgunned, but they could have and should have won game three. They won game four. They were extremely competitive in game five, and it would have been a more competitive series probably if Cleveland had home court, and they were punished for being horrible mm-hmm. down the stretch of the regular season. I, don't, I mean, they wouldn't have caught Golden State anyway, but Golden State was rewarded with home court for winning 67 games during the year. So... I I have a hard time feeling bad for Cleveland for not having enough talent to compete and I well, and also just I don't I don't think this is like a super depressing, you know, apocalyptic scenario the fact no, that this team won. No, I think it's great for basketball and I think for the reason that you point out Josh that it's the sort of our imaginations don't have to just be imagination anymore. Now we know what it's like when you can put fan- the best athletes, the best players of a game together and watch them play beautifully. Uh, Danny Chow on The Ringer this uh, on Tuesday morning posted a piece in which he compared it to total football. Um, the Netherlands with Johan Cruyff in the, in the 1970s. 
so it's sort of like, what would it be like if we could watch a truly great team perform? And that's what we got to see. I would also just say this. I think it's a little bit exaggerated. If you look at LeBron and Kyrie versus Durant and Curry, it's not like the Warriors guys are an order of magnitude better. And I think it in the last three games, Cleveland, whether they, you know, retain David Griffin or get another GM or whatever, they can go into the offseason without being totally insane and think we can compete with these guys if we improve sort of around the margins. Like, we don't have to tear this up. Well, and real quickly, Mike, before you jump in, they are committed to spending more than $40 million for Tristan Thompson, J.R. Smith, and Iman Shumpert over the next two years, each of the next two years. That's 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 a budget problem. Yeah, Amon, he really dominated last game. Um couple things. One, I always the sports has a number of appeals and there is that beautiful athletic balletic appeal, but that's more of a performance like ballet or like opera, which is, you know, in the context of a of a show or a performance but you don't really get that excitement. Most of the excitement doesn't come from the plot or questioning what's going to happen. I always viewed basketball and team sports more of the drama, and it does come from the conflict. So while it can be this you know, beautifully acted or executed performance, if the show itself doesn't have much conflict, it's a lesser show. So that's, that's the downside to that. Secondly, you're right. I would say Durant and Steph, I would rather have probably LeBron and Kyrie. It's just the next two guys... Right. Uh, you know, Love and who, JR or Tristan versus uh, versus Clay and Draymond. And of course, what they do is not just stacking up players. It's the fact that you could be off if you're Steph Curry or any one of those guys or any two of those guys, you can be off and be fine. Or if you're Clay and only have one or two good shooting games, you're still unbelievably valuable for your defense. I mean, it just gives you such a ballast. It's like, you know, when we talked about the Yankees having so much money, it's not just that they get the players, it's that if they whiff on a free agent, they'll just do two or three more. So, you know, that's a dynamic there. And secondly, uh, let's also note that uh, I don't know if I'm depressed for LeBron. Think of it this way. In his post-game statements, uh, LeBron has an audience of one, and that's Dan Gilbert. And what he's going to try to do is, you know, whatever he can to threaten to maybe leave, but also put as much pressure on him to sign more free agents and better free agents. And again, I don't begrudge Durant for winning his championship I, I even got into an argument with uh, a San Antonio fan who was going on about Durant being a super team. I'm like, it's the same thing the Spurs did. It's the same dynamic. It's a bunch of homegrown guys and good draft picks. Plus, they added a big power forward. It's just that Durant's so much better than LaMarcus Aldridge. This, by the way, was mostly a debate in my head. He was just a loud guy at the table sitting next <laughs> to me the other day. But but the thing is that there is uh, – and I don't think it's nostalgia – I think that there is a beauty to thinking about a team as a great guy, a near great guy, and parts. And it's fun, and it's exciting to see how the parts fit. And now if the definition of a team is just slathering on the greatness, it's different. I don't think I like it as much. Maybe I will come to like it as much. And I definitely don't think I'm going to like it as much as if it seems that that super team just can't be beaten. But the thing that I think gets lost in all the super team conversation, Mike, is that this has existed in the NBA for decades. I mean, we're going to talk about uh, the Hawks new documentary about the Lakers and the Celtics. Those teams were stacked. I mean, there were five Hall of Famers on each of one of those Celtics teams and Lakers teams. But what if there was only one of them? 
What if the Celtics or the Lakers didn't exist? No, then there wouldn't have been. John wouldn't have done a five-hour documentary about the rivalry. <laughs> it wouldn't have gotten Ice Cube. <laughs> the thing that the thing that I think is lost in the inevitability aspect of it, and which made Game Five enjoyable for me, is that Kevin Durant went out there and did it. He did. I mean, he played great. The shots that he made, contested over LeBron and over everyone else were not shots that he made because he's Kevin Durant and they were like granted to him by the beneficence of of the league and his opponent. He made shots that nobody else in basketball could make over outstretched hands of great defenders. And the thing that I've found really fascinating about this finals is that there has been the literalization of the term unguardable because it's been said for decades about players. Oh, this guy's unguardable. This guy's unstoppable. But because of the rules and because of how skilled Kyrie and LeBron and Steph and Durant are, there are at times, and for Durant in game five, it was the entire game where there is nothing that you can do. And that for me would be not any of the like bigger picture stuff, but like actually playing the game that must be the part that's either depressing or frustrating is to feel, and the Cavs certainly were fucking up on defense a lot in the game, but just to feel like you're doing everything you possibly can. And there's a guy who, if you're eight feet tall and holding a broom, there's no way you can stop him. And then when he's not doing that, he's driving against Kyle Korver up 10 with three minutes to go, which was obviously not optimal for... Wait, but I think the unguardable thing... I mean, Kevin Durant didn't become a better basketball player in the last one or two or since his NBA season. The unguardable thing is somewhat a function of the fact that you have all these other options. I mean, if you looked at a shot chart of, great, he had great numbers. He also didn't take many bad shots. Granted... Uh, when well, I you think have he was a, making a lot of tough shots, hard in game, shots in Game Five. I mean, I, think, I don't, I don't, I don't think you're wrong about the season writ large. But I think when this was a really tight game and they needed a shot, he made a lot of challenge deep three pointers. Yes, I just think that if you look, you compared his chart here in this series against uh, versus what he did last year in the Western Conference Finals, he was taking further out shots or more challenge shots or shots later in the shot clock. I mean, I, I don't, I just, I don't have this stats in front of me. I would just think that's true. And that is not to take anything away from him, but it is true that he didn't become a better basketball player. He just, all these guys, you know, take fewer shots, but most of the fewer shots they take are the worst shots uh, that they were kind of forced to take. I would actually disagree on the fact that he didn't become a better basketball player. At least I wouldn't say that we should stipulate that. I mean, I think he played really good defense. I think he was a great uh, passer in this series. And I think even though there is like a, a sort of narrative gloss on it, I think there is something legitimate vis-a-vis greatness to be the best player in a championship deciding game and to make the shots that he made. And so maybe, you know, maybe he would have been that great and would have had, if he would have had the opportunity in OKC to be in this game. But I think there is like a sort of putting a stamp on it that happened in, in this game and that like that he's like 
bona fide and officially awesome now. And don't underestimate the amount of preparation that went into this to getting to this last game in terms of this team becoming a team. Lee Jenkins' long piece that posted after the game. I like how you inserted lots of O's and long. That was a good auditory aid. Thank you. Um, Really, it was enlightening for me in terms of what Kevin Durant had to do to integrate into this team. One of the great images in this piece is that at Warriors practice, they have four hoops set up opposite from each other. And until Durant got there, there was a point in practice where Curry would be at one hoop, Clay Thompson would be at another hoop, Draymond Green would be at the third hoop, and the rest of the team would be at the fourth hoop (laughs) taking shots. One team, four hoops. One team, four hoops. And Durant, when he got there... Went with all the other guys. Oh, I'm sure that's why they won the title. It is <laughs> selfless, selfless. But th- but then by by later in the season, it was him and Curry at one hoop. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mike, it was it was fun. This was great. Are we this, done? We're we're the super team that can't be beaten. Can't no we matter keep, how can good your column going? is. I think we're done. I think we'll we'll leave them wanting more. Um, or or whatever wherever we are, we're at stopping. <laughs> if they want more, it's up to them. Mike Pesca is the host of The Jest. He is an emeritus host of Hang Up and Listen. Thank you, Mike. Still still drawing an IRA from it. Thanks very much. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to soccer and to Ice Cube, here is a heads up about this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members. In that segment, we're going to have Kevin Arnovitz back to talk about the most popular restaurants among NBA players, Cheesecake Factory will be discussed. If you want to hear about that, please join Slate Plus. It's just $49 a year. And we get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. The U.S. men's national soccer team played a World Cup qualifier at dreaded Azteca Stadium in Mexico City on Sunday night. Did Mexican fans boo the U.S. national anthem? Yes, they did. Did they shout in obscenity whenever U.S. keeper Brad Guzan took goal kicks? Again, yes, they did. Did they throw bags of urine on American players? I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that the United States gained a rare point in Mexico with a 1-1 draw thanks to Michael Bradley's curled chip wonder goal from 40-plus yards over Mexico's off-his-line keeper in the sixth minute, and that Christian Pulisic played 90-plus minutes and had a kind of near miss after some nifty dribbling across the top of the box near the end of the game. Three nights earlier, the 18-year-old midfielder scored both U.S. goals in a shutout win over Trinidad and Tobago that restored some comfort to the Americans' 2018 World Cup qualifying journey. And Pulisic, of course, has been a revelation in more than U.S. games. Last season, he became the youngest non-German to score in the Bundesliga, where he plays for Borussia Dortmund. This season, he played in 29 games 
helped Dortmund win the German Cup, scored in a friggin' Champions League match, and there are now rumors that his contract could be sold to an English Premier League team for tens of millions of dollars. Forget for a moment the hypey question about how good Christian Pulisic can become. Let's focus instead on two questions that are even more important to the future of American soccer. How did he get this good? And can his success be replicated? George Dorman spent time with Pulisic and his family and coaches for a long piece for Bleacher Report magazine titled The Christian Pulisic Blueprint. He joins us now. Hey, George. Hey, guys. All right. So Pulisic didn't do much on Sunday night versus Mexico. And we can talk about that a little bit later. I don't think it's a big deal. It's hard to do much in Azteca, especially in your first World Cup qualifier. But in your story, you write that Pulisic is a breakthrough and exemplar Hope that America has turned a corner. What is truly remarkable about Pulisic to me is that he has sprung from unextraordinary circumstances. And before we dive into the blueprint, establish for us, George, Pulisic's basic background. I mean, he's a kid. He's an all-American kid born in, you know, Hershey, Pennsylvania, chocolate town, right? Um, you know, he, he had two parents who were soccer players, so that may be a little unique, although not that unique anymore, given we're sort of seeing these Title IX babies uh, who have both parents who are high-level athletes. So, um, you know, he's this all-American kid. He did take some paths with his family where he traveled and whatnot, but, you know, he lived in Hershey, Pennsylvania. He lived in Detroit for a stint. So this is your your all-American boy. He trained um, at Barcelona at the La Masia Academy when he was a kid. Um, these were opportunities that were granted to him because his father was a soccer player and coach. So I don't think we want to like play up the idea too much that he was just like a kid, uh, you know, that any other kid who grew up in Hershey, Pennsylvania would have had the same opportunities. So I'm curious for your thoughts on how important it was for him to have these early opportunities to train in these very high level situations. And also the fact that his parents were both soccer players and, knew what it took at least to some degree to you know train uh, a kid who was going to be a world-class player yeah i mean they i think that the impact of having his parents be soccer players and his dad being a, a coach in the indoor league in in the u.s and elsewhere was mostly that he was just around soccer a lot right it wasn't his dad was not a you know a drill sergeant type who was training him constantly. He, he said he didn't really schedule training sessions with his son. He just let him play in the backyard. Um, so, so the impact I think was that he, the game was around him. It was, he, he saw it being played. He watched it on television a lot with his parents. He was immersed in it in a way that, you know, kids can be now, uh, that didn't exist before. The second part of that is, you know, his family more impactful than I think training at, at Barcelona and other places was his family did a stint in England. His mom did a teaching fellowship over there. So they lived in England for a year when Christian was around six, seven years old. And, you know, he trained with a little pro team. there, not a great pro team, but really what was impactful according to his family was just that he saw how big the the game was in England. He played with kids in a, like a pickup way on a basketball court actually over there and, and on some grass fields. And so he got this sort of, Oh, this is what you do. You, after school, you go out and you just play pickup soccer. You just train with yourself. And that became a big part of his development. Right. And he was really small. As you said, he was like seven years old. So this was part of the sort of the intuitive 
approach to the game. Like part of this was innate, right? He liked watching soccer with his dad and with his mom, and he liked going into the front yard and learning how to juggle. I mean, and and according to your piece, his parents were not pushing him to like go out in the backyard and do drills and take 50 shots, you know, 10 into the upper corner, 10 into the upper left corner, 10 in the upper right corner, 10 on the ground, whatever. Um, but the, 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 the controllable stuff is what really intrigued me about, about your story, George. Um, the family was very low key here. It emphasized a few things that I think are crucial to developing great athletes. He played less organized soccer than a lot of kids. He played basketball. He played other sports. He took time off in the summer and winter. He was given the freedom to play by coaches. There wasn't a lot of micromanaging of where you dribble and when you pass. He was given the freedom to be creative. He played on a lesser club team, not the highest club team, so that he could gain some control over the game and learn how to manage things and express himself and be a leader. Um, and those things are... Really interesting because the pressure in youth soccer in America is you got to play on the top level club team. You have to travel a lot. You've got to play year round. Yeah. And I think that those are some things that struck me when I was reporting this. You know, he played even when he was like, say, 14. So he was now on the national team radar. He was one of the best players in the country. He'd already trained at some places, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, he was practicing twice a week for like an hour and a half a session. That And that's it. And, and, and some weeks. That's and so incredible. this, it is. And, and what it did was it, you know, he talked to his dad, his coaches meant that when he wasn't practicing those other days, he loved to just be an athlete. So he would play football. He played basketball. He loves basketball. Um, you know, but he would do those things, which are just good for him athletically to take a break from soccer as well. But then also he would just go in the backyard and, and he would do what kids in other countries do, which is just yeah. play pickup soccer. So they were not controlling of the situation. They were not, there were not, you know, personal trainers and weight coaches and nutritionists and the things that parents now do to try to push their kids. They just didn't push him. They let him love the game. And then that love pushed him. One thing that I found really interesting that I hadn't thought of before, um, this is a quote from Richie Williams, who is an assistant coach with the national team, who also coached uh, Pulisic as a youth player. He said, when you're the best player on your team, but your team is not as good, it means you handle the ball more, you have to do more to carry your team, and in the process, you're developing your game. If it's a loaded team, that same player might be identified as a role player and never develop those skills. The context there is that Christian played on a team in Pennsylvania that was not the very top team that he could have played for and might have, just by dint of his talent, you know, he would have been moved to another team. So um, this idea that we should keep players where they are, let their coaches develop them rather than immediately transport the best players into some centralized national system is an interesting one. But then it calls into question the idea like, you know, you write about how U.S. soccer has its, you know, politic blueprint and it's studying all this video. Are they going to be able to resist, um, you know, the the impulse to bring everything they've supposedly learned from Pulisic and to bring it into their own national system and want to just, you know, deal with all these kids themselves. Yeah. I mean, I think they're trying to, they're trying to organize coaching and development across the country so that it's somewhat similar. Right. And they can't, they were too big. They just can't control it. Um, but they're just trying to bring some uniformity to how kids are scouted and how they're trained. And Christian is so 
great an example of this because he was tiny, as we've talked about. And the old system would have maybe rejected a kid like that because he was so small. Um, and he had a growth spurt at like 14 that really threw off his game. And, and they were, they understood that they understood how he's going through a growth spurt. It's okay. Well, you know, a different super club maybe would have moved Christian out of the number 10 role and made him more of a role player. So that gets to the point you had about, you know, playing for the right club team. I mean, when I spoke with his dad, one of the things we talked about that, the idea of not playing for these bigger clubs that wanted him was, you know, someday Christian's going to play against like, he's going to play for the U S and he's going to play against Argentina and he's just going to be they're going to be dominated and they're going to have to learn how to play against a team that is way better. Well, playing for the PA classics in Hershey, Pennsylvania, that's that Christian learned. He learned what it's like to be a player either back against the wall against a more talented foe. How do you adapt the game and how do you help your teammates adapt? So these are these really smart lessons that intentionally, unintentionally he learned playing for that lesser club. I mean, the hardest thing to replicate, of course, is the most probably important thing that Polisic enjoyed as a kid, which was don't have an asshole for a father and don't have an asshole for a mother. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And these, these seem like balanced people who understood not just the game, but also that what, what was best for their child was what was best for him emotionally, not just for his athletic development. You know, when you're handed a prodigy, the chance of screwing it up increases dramatically and the politics seemed to not do that yeah you know this is something that didn't quite make it into my story but mark Polisic, the father talked about his own father who's croatian and you know he just said his dad didn't know how to offer criticism or you know to coach him he wasn't a coach but just to instruct as a parent you know and so you know, we, in the story I talk about, Mark and and his and Kelly, they're they're ice cream parents. Like after a game, they just take their kid for ice cream. They don't yell at him for any reason. They they don't need to because Christian's hard on himself. But moreover, it's not productive to be the guy yelling at your kid in the car after the game. Let's just take him to ice cream. Well, Mark's father wasn't an ice cream dad, right? So he corrected that with his own son. And you know, we 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 learn from our own experiences, and that's one thing he learned was how to be a, a parent to an athlete. Isn't the correct answer here that if you want to have a pipeline of talent and have a country that's incredibly deep, and let's you know just focus on spot soccer specifically here, the answer isn't find the one kid who's really good and don't screw it up. The answer is, you know, like they do at Barcelona or at the other academies, bring in 500 kids, you know, understanding that a huge percentage of them aren't going to pan out even in Spain or Germany where they seemingly know how to do this and just, you know, acknowledge that a lot of them aren't going to make it. And those kids just get kind of shunted out of the system whenever they, you know, stop living up to their promise. And then at the end, you just have a few who are, you know, like, you know, world-class players. I think that's, I think in some ways, Josh, that's happening, not just through U.S. soccer and its academy-based system, but I'll give you a local example. My neighbor has a kid that's incredibly good. He's about 11 years old. (laughs) Hyper-local. But he has gone and started his own club because he was dissatisfied with the kind of training and approach that his kid was getting and teamed up with some other people and has hired coaches and brought people in from overseas. So there's an awareness that there is a right way to do this and a right way to build a club from the bottom and bring in kids and try to nurture the proper approach to development. Yeah, I mean, I think if you go back, gosh, I don't know, 
20 years, we were following this sort of strange, like, you know, sort of England influenced way of developing kids. We are now looking at the way, you know, Spain develops kids and Mexico and Holland. And, right. and so we're looking, we're now looking more broadly at how to develop kids. So you have a guy like Mark Pulisic or other parents like him, like the guy you're mentioning, who are questioning the system. They're questioning the methods. And I think it's correct that we ultimately just are going to get as many kids in as we can and pluck the best ones. But we're just more equipped now because we are not there is we're not viewing this through an American lens or purely, uh, you know, the English lens. We are now viewing this as the world's game. And, you know, the example I used in the story was Mark Pulisic knew that, you know, great South American players played futsal, this sort of different small court, heavier ball version of the game where you get a lot of touches. Well, so he started a futsal league that didn't exist before in Detroit, just so his son could play this game that helps South Americans develop their skill. That doesn't happen, you know, 20 years ago. So we, there's this, this awareness now that exists. Uh, looking now, George, at the U.S. national team and some of the newer players that Bruce Arena has been been bringing to camp and even slotted into to the Mexico game last night. Kellen, and, Kellen Acosta. Kellen Acosta, Paul Ariola, who plays in Mexico. Um, and then looking at the younger generation of players, some members of the U.S. 20 men's national team who just went out in the quarterfinals of the U-20 World Cup. Are you seeing evidence that this better approach, this more holistic, more humane, more smarter, more European approach toward developing uh, players is having effect in America? I, I think, yeah, I think you, you would you can't look at the pool right now, say the kids under 20 and the really young kids with the national team, the senior team, like Kellen Acosta, who's only you know 21, almost 22. This is, we are developing them faster. Like they, there used to be this idea that Americans were late bloomers yeah. as soccer players because they played college or, and we didn't have a good pro setup here. We have a better pro setup. You know, Dallas, where Kellen Acosta played, has a great academy that Kellen Acosta came through as a young player. So we developed him like a European team would develop. And you, you know, a player like Josh Sargent, who is, was the, you know, voted the second best player at the under 20 world cup at 17, you know, he should have been playing in, you know, he's way too young in some ways for that, but now he was so good that they pushed him up into the under 20 world cup. So I think he, you know, we're seeing our players emerge earlier, which is something that didn't happen before. And so that's only a good thing, right? It's, these players are now making cracking the lineups at 20 21 18 you know 17 things like that this is a huge sign that we're getting better at this george norman is a sports writer his most recent piece for bleacher report magazine is titled the christian Polisic blueprint george thanks so much for coming on the show uh thanks guys i'm alex rodriguez and i'm jason kelly from bloomberg this is the deal each week you're here is in conversation with business icons this show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. My whole mission was beating Larry and the Celtics. His whole mission was to beat Magic and the Lakers. I don't want Larry Bird to hold nothing over me. We were not going to lose to them damn Lakers. We had no respect for him. None. Bird backed up Michael Cooper into the photographer's lane. You just hate that cockiness. You just hate it. Boston. Magic underneath slam dunk. McHale and Magic going at it. McHale. 
what? Lakers Celtics. Man, that takes me back. This is your boy Ice Cube, and I grew up in LA in the 80s, when only three things mattered. Being the nicest on the mic, having a dollar in your pocket, and beating the Boston Celtics in the NBA Finals. That is the introduction to ESPN's new 30 for 30 documentary, Celtics Lakers Best of Enemies, an epic five-hour chronicle of one of the greatest rivalries in professional sports. The film is the work of our friend Jonathan Hawk, who serves as executive producer. It's directed by Jim Podhoritz. Parts one and two will debut on ESPN on Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, with part three on Wednesday at 8. It is a sprawling work, not only about sports, but also, of course, about two starkly different cities, franchises, fan bases, and styles, with race as a central driving force of the narrative of these teams and of the NBA in the 1970s and 80s. It's also reflected in the selection of narrators, one for the Celtics, Donnie Wahlberg, Boston Garden accent and all, and the man you heard at the top, the rapper, actor, and basketball entrepreneur Ice Cube, who joins us now. Welcome to the show, Cube. Thanks so much for doing it. Oh, man, no problem, man. Uh, I gather from talking to Jonathan Hawk that narrating this documentary was not a business gig for you. You grew, you were uh, born in 1969. You were peak adolescent in the 1980s. What did the Lakers mean to you as a kid growing up in L.A.? It meant everything. Um, you know, growing up in South Central Los Angeles, you know, I could throw a rock and hit the farm in Inglewood. Uh, so... You know, I just couldn't believe that so many cool things was going on, like, you know, literally three and a half miles from my house. So I just couldn't believe that, you know, I was that lucky to have, you know, and before I went to to the Lakers, we saw, you know, the circus there. We saw Harlem Globetrotters and, you know, so it was just cool that our team played right there in the hood, really. And um, I was just amazed at, at that we had, you know, one of the best players, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, at the time when I started really paying attention. And, you know, it was like he was the best player. Um, and he went to UCLA, too, which uh, was a place that my mom worked at. So... It was all just, you know, it was surreal in a way. Do you remember the first time you saw Magic play? Yeah. It was the uh, championship game against Bird, uh, the Spartans, against uh, Indiana State. You know, my brother, I was 10, and my brother, uh, who's nine years older than me, he was like, you got to watch this game. You got to watch this game. You know, this kid named Magic, man, he the best. And I'm like, okay, you know. And when I watched it, you know, uh, Magic won, which I was happy because I was happy that my brother was happy. And then I liked how he played. And then that interview he did afterwards, he just seemed like a good dude. And next thing you know, we got Magic. So I didn't know how that happened at the time. I just was like, man, this is great because we got, you know, a player that I was, you know, that I'm into now, you know. So 
that's kind of how it, it, you know, I really started to really get into basketball. It was, it was really, you know, the Lakers drafting Magic Johnson. Now the Celtics won it in 81 when you were like 12 and then the Lakers won in 82 and 83 and the beat LA chance started after the Celtics were eliminated by the Sixers that year. And then comes 1984. And those were the crazy seven game series finals. McHale close lines, Kurt Rambis, Kareem elbows bird bird knocks, Michael Cooper out of bounds with his butt. The Celtics win in seven. And in the documentary you say, and John Hawk told me you ad libbed this. So it's gotta be real. I'm pretty sure I cried that night watching those last seconds tick away. And 30, whatever years later, it doesn't hurt any less. Yeah, man, because I remember so much anxiety. You know, I was confident because I had watched Magic win a championship in in college, and he came right to the Lakers and won a championship. Uh, you know, Boston won in 81. I didn't care. It wasn't against the Lakers. And then the Lakers won in 82. So I was like, you know, we got two rings. You know, we know how to do this. You know, we got magic. But my my brother and his friends had a lot of anxiety because it was Boston. And we had, you know, he had seen, you know, Jerry West, you know, lose to Boston. Um, so I didn't have that anxiety until they started playing and started cheating and, and, you know, turning the heat up in the gym. And I'm like, what is going on? And, and then there was all this leprechaun talk, and I'm like, you know, it was unraveling, and I didn't understand what was going on until, you know, I saw how hard it is to beat those dudes, um, you know, especially in Boston Garden. So when you're watching in 84 or even before that, and the Celtics have Bird, McHale, Ainge, how much are you thinking about race and that the Lakers are playing the team with all the white guys in the NBA. Man, that's exactly what it was. It was uh, the cool black team against the slow white guys. And how could they beat us? <laughs> that's how I was thinking. How could they beat us? I mean, that's a complete unsubtext, not even subtext. It's front and center in the documentary, yeah. just as it was in the 80s. I mean, it was that it was that way since them dudes played that game, you know, in 1979. It was just there in the air, um, and you know, it was not just you know in sports; it was everywhere in the air, you know. Um, you know, black people were starting to interact with white people more and more and vice versa. And, you know, the comparisons of style of play, uh, you know, old style versus new, um, you know, form team basketball versus, a, you know, more open style. Um, you know, it was, it was definitely, you know, the clash of eras, the clash of styles and definitely the clash of races. You know, that was the undertone that made that made that made the 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 series come to a fever pitch. Yeah. I remember that time it was uh I think it was Larry Holmes versus George 
not George, not George Clooney, but uh, <laughs> Jerry Cooney. Jerry Cooney. And it was that same sentiment in the air um, that Boston and the Lakers brought out. Rocky versus Apollo Creed. <laughs> yeah. And the Celtics played into it. I mean, you can argue, as some sports writers do in the documentary, that, look, Red Auerbach was just sort of exploiting market inefficiencies. In the 60s, is the dude that signed Bill Russell in a white city. And in the 80s, he was going after white players, maybe because they were underappreciated. But damn, he goes out and signs Bill Walton in 86. They've got mm-hmm. Bird, McHale, Walton, Ainge, and like a bench filled with white guys, too. And as you say in the documentary, and I'm just going to play the clip here to let you say it. They did defuse it pretty quick. But the controversy with Isaiah and Larry didn't come out of nowhere. The NBA was 75% black, and the Celtics were 75% white. And in this country, and with that city, that just didn't feel like a coincidence. It sure didn't look like a coincidence, did it? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was... It was a trip because, you know, you couldn't say, you know, Boston was a racist team because they won so many championships with Bill Russell. You know, it was like it didn't it didn't it didn't compute. But visually, that's what you saw. Um, You know, I remember they had like one of the first black coaches I had seen, you know, it was Casey, Casey Jones. Jones. No. Yeah, Casey Jones. And it was so you knew it was all about basketball, you know what I mean, at a certain point. And when you look at the players they pick, them dudes are no slouches. They can ball. And yeah, they just picked the best players that suited their team and just happened to be white guys. So you already mentioned, we already talked about the game um, that you – you know, it made it made you cry. What's the game um, in the Lakers Celtics rivalry that left you feeling happiest? Nineteen eighty five, Kareem running down the court, screaming, flexing his muscles, <laughs> and them them running off the court into that ugly yellow locker room, whatever that thing was. <laughs> <laughs> Looked like they went to a holding cell. <laughs> but we was popping champagne. California, we was running out the door screaming. Finally, ding dong, the witch is dead. Yeah, that was the first time the Lakers beat the Celtics after eight straight losses in the finals. Yes. That's an amazing one. And then, and then in 87, the Lakers win again and kind of seal the, the, the rivalry for the 80s. And that was the that was the year when Isaiah Thomas said that if Larry Bird were black, he'd be just another player. And John um, explores that a lot in the documentary. And so it's, it's a really interesting moment in the history of the NBA. What do you mean, just another All Star, just That's, another Hall of Famer? Right. I mean, what does he mean? <laughs> so you know, everybody knows that Bird was nice with it. You know, and. I think it was a little frustration talking, and it's it's cool. It's over. How did you feel yeah. about Larry Bird? Uh, hated him, but respected him. <laughs> you know, I respected his game, but I hated that he was that good, and 
he didn't pass the eye test. <laughs> I, it, it was it was an enigma to me. So the level of animosity between these teams was very high, and it's different than what you see in the league today. I don't know if you saw the clip of Draymond and LeBron in the barbershop with Rich Paul and Steve Stout, and these are guys who are on you know, the teams that have been really going at each other in the finals the last three years, but it's clear they don't have the animosity towards each other, even after one of them kicked the other one in the groin last year. What, how does it make you feel as an expert on barbershops and basketball to see them in the, you know, in the chair, just like being peers and not really acting like they hate each other? I don't, I don't think you have to put on some kind of hate charade. You know what I mean? I, I love the hell out of my brother, but on the basketball court, I'm going after his neck. Right. <laughs> no mercy. And I believe these dudes are the same way. Uh, so these are athletes. They have a lot of pride on the line. Everybody wants that ring. You know, I don't care what they do before the game. You know, uh, I see fighters face off, and they never hit each other until they get in the ring. You know what I mean? They never yell at each other until they get in the ring. So, it's a sport. I think these dudes know how to turn it off. And when it comes to, you know, winning, I don't know how many people are going to get that up to a friend. Uh, Lakers have a uh, second pick in this draft. The Celtics have the first pick. Is this rivalry coming back, Cuban? Do you want it to? Yeah, I do. You know, we always get them, you know, they 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 might get us, but we'll get them, you know, we always had a last laugh when it comes to them Celtics, so. Why not? Let's get it going again. They're more. They're a little more. They're a little closer than we are. A lot closer. We just need to uh, build off the great Magic Johnson and take his lead. All right, we can't let you go without asking uh, about three-on-three basketball in the Olympics in 2020. You've got this league, Big Three. It's kicking off uh, on June 25th at Barclays Center. How do you feel about three-on-three basketball being in the Olympics? Uh, I think it's great, you know, um, it's really, you know, a, a sport that's played more than five on five. When you really think about all the three on three games that, that happen in backyards and playgrounds, schoolyards and gyms all over the world. So, you know, it is the most fun played of basketball. Um, I know five on five full court gets all the attention. But, you know, it's about time. And, you know, it's a great time for the big three, which we're trying to introduce professional three-on-three basketball. And it's just, you know, great timing, momentum for our league. You know, we feel like uh, our league is going to be great in the summer. You can watch Monday Night Basketball on FS1, and we're going to have a competitive league. It's not going to be this this friendship, buddy-buddy uh, thing, by no means, because it's a lot of pride and a lot of legacy on the line. And uh, these guys got a lot to prove because people, for some reason, think because you don't have an NBA contract, you forget how to play basketball. And that's just not true. So so who's your three-on-three team for the U.S. in 2020? I'm a little worried we're not going to be able to beat the Gasol brothers. We'll be able to beat them. You know? <laughs> just, just, uh, just you know, check out the big three. 
And, uh, you know, I know the USA basketball is going to be watching, and we might have a squad in our midst. You know, it might be a little long in the tooth, but in the three-on-three game, trust me, uh, it, it, these guys look great, and it's, it's, it's the perfect – it's the perfect um, format for uh, these, you know, superstars. Ice Cube is one of the narrators of the documentary Celtics Lakers Best of Enemies. Parts one and two air on ESPN on Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern and part three on Wednesday at 8. It'll re-air on ABC this Saturday, June 17th and on Saturday, June 24th. Cube, thanks so much for coming on the show. No problem, man. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it is time for After Balls. And as you know, Stefan, in the uh, track Good Day, Ice Cube talks about fucking around and getting a triple double. Mm-hmm. There was some internet sleuthing a couple of years ago where someone supposedly figured out that Ice Cube's Good Day was January 20th, 1992 just based on various markers in the song. And Ice Cube uh, was asked by Vulture whether, in fact, the day was January 20th, 1992, to which his response was, nice try. (laughs) (laughs) But I think we'll still go with January 20th, 1992 as the name for our afterballs, because that was a good day. Stefan, what is your January 20th, 1992? There are many terrific moments in uh, John Hawks, Celtics, Lakers, 30 for 30. The games, of course, the short shorts, Kareem's goggles, Danny Ainge's powder blue sweater vest is a favorite of mine. Everybody's hair is pretty great. But one of the most jarring reminders about the NBA of the 70s and 80s is that players fought on the court a lot. In making the doc, John, who worked at NBA Entertainment after we graduated from college in the mid-80s and logged hundreds of hours of game tape, said that it felt like there was a fight a game when they were putting the doc together. Some of it was pushing and shoving. Some of it could be characterized as dirty play, like, for instance, when Kevin McHale clotheslined Kurt Rambis in Game 4 of the 84 Finals. Here's how Boston's Homer announcer Johnny Most called that one. Goes over to Rampus, and Rampus is sick. He goes around belting people all through the ballgame, but when he gets that, he cannot take it. The Celtics-Lakers doc covers six actual fights. Kevin McHale versus Bob McAdoo, Danny Ainge versus Kurt Rambis, Danny Ainge versus Byron Scott, Danny Ainge versus Tree Rollins. That was the one where Rollins bit Ainge. James Worthy versus Greg Kite. And a famous fight between Larry Bird and Dr. J. The great thing about that fight was that it occurred in the first week of the regular season in 1984 when nobody really should have cared or been fighting. Barkley. Oh, there oh, is. Yeah. And look at it. Jay oh. hitting Bird as he's being held from behind by Barkley and Moses Malone. Nice going, guys. Yeah, nice shots, guys. I pretty bush what you just saw as the melee that we're watching right now action has resumed 
Charles Barkley has since denied that he was holding back Bird so that Dr. J could punch him. In any case, as with most of the fights of the 70s and 80s, punishment was non-existent. Uh, Bird and Irving were fined a grand total of $7,500 apiece. Nobody was suspended. And that was viewed at the time as a harsh crackdown. There were a total of $30,500 in fines stemming from that fight. The 7500 for Julius and Larry were records. Dr. J appealed the fine as excessive. Dave Anderson of the New York Times wrote a column about how the commissioner was flexing his muscle in handing out those punishments. Looking back, it is kind of amazing how the NBA and sports generally tolerated on-court and on-field fights. And we are talking about fights that involved dudes squaring up like John L. Sullivan and Gentleman Jim Corbett, guys throwing sucker punches, packs spilling into benches and into the crowds. Suspensions were rare. Wikipedia has a list of NBA suspensions of six games or more. There are five from the 1990s, most of which are familiar to us. Latrell Sprewell for choking his head coach. Dennis Rodman for kicking a cameraman. It's fun to relive these. Vernon Maxwell for going into the stands to punch a heckler. Nick Van Exel for pushing a ref. Rodman again for headbutting a ref. And this was in a decade when Jeff Van Gundy was like holding on to Alonzo Mourning's leg during a brawl like it was a stripper's pole. There were no six game plus suspensions in the 80s and just one in the 70s. 26 games for Kermit Washington for literally nearly killing Rudy Tomjanovich with a punch. 26 games. That was it. Uh, the NBA's tolerance for fighting ended, of course, when Ron Artest climbed into the stands in Detroit and brawled with fans in 2004. And the absence of bare knuckles fighting in the NBA is probably a reflection of a healthier sport and society. But looking back, it is amazing to watch what transpired on the court. So let us end, Josh, with a 1977 brawl during game two of the NBA finals between the 76ers and the Trailblazers. Gilliam inside. Brooklyn's just ranks, goes down to the ground and jumps back up. a fan out there there were like fans and cameramen and all the benches and coaches and refs it was crazy but my favorite part josh is when brett musburger pleads for somebody to do something sounded like he was calling a horse race right time there dawkins it's lucas it's dawkins it's lucas down the back stretch and they are totally doing the the 19th century bare knuckles boxing thing that's cool Bring it back is what you're saying, yeah, right? Totally. More fights. More fights. Yeah. Fight, 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 fight. Josh, what's your January 20th, 1992? I was 11 years old. It was winter. Um, no. So if you listened to the show all the way through last week, you'll remember that Stefan did his afterball about the EFIS, the extremely hierarchical pitch that has become little seen in baseball the last few decades. During that afterball, he mentioned a moment where Dave LaRoche struck out Gorman Thomas on an EFIS in 1981. You can watch that highlight on YouTube, and it's a good, good clip to watch, but it's better, I think, to listen to. Let's listen to that clip. LaRoche has the crowd excited. 
The thing I noticed, and I'm guessing you noticed during that clip, is that the crowd at Yankee Stadium is extremely loud. They're going bananas. Mm -hmm. You really get the sense of being in the stands and the explosion that happened when Thomas swung and missed. I think they were actually shouting Ephus. In an extremely engaged and excited manner. Now, I want to play a clip from a more recent sports broadcast. This is game three of the NBA Finals in Cleveland, and it's late in the fourth quarter, and Cavs fan souls have not yet been crushed. This is, in fact, the high point of the game for the Cavs and their fans. J.R. Smith makes a three to put them up 113 to 107, and then the Cavs get a defensive stop. Let's listen. James splits the defense, kicks it out. J.R. Smith for three. Bang! Can you believe that pass? Across his body, on target. Kevin Durant tries to answer, comes up short, rebound James. It's Bedlam here in Cleveland. Coach, they're doing a better job. So the crowd is louder after JR makes the three than it is when Mike Breen says that it's Bedlam here in Cleveland, when it doesn't actually sound as a home viewer that it really is bedlam in Cleveland. And I feel like that happens fairly often where an announcer says it's bedlam or crazy or so loud you can't hear, but it doesn't necessarily sound that way. So I asked Fred Goodelli, who we've had on the show, he's the executive producer of NBC's Sunday Night Football, to explain what's going on here. And he told me that the producer or director of a live sporting event is always trying to find the balance between hearing the crowd in full throat and um, hearing the announcers and that the best announcers will feel those moments and lay out so the crowd can be milked for full effect. That's what Goodelli said. It's easier to do that in baseball, obviously, because after that big strikeout, as is typical in baseball, nothing happens for a long time. And Mike Breen, Mark Jackson, Jeff Van Gundy need to continue to call the game and narrate the action. There's not really an opportunity unless there's a timeout for them to lay out and for you to really hear the crowd. Um, it's also, um, Gadelli said, a particular challenge in arenas that are particularly loud or stadiums. He mentioned uh, the Seattle Seahawks home games. It's constantly you know, ear splitting and the audio mixer is on the dials all game long so we can hear the announcers and the crowd noise at the same time. And what Gadelli said and what's obvious um, if you have been alive in the world for the last several decades, is that technology is a lot better than it was 30 years ago and that you can isolate sounds, you can leave certain mics open and shut other ones off in a way that you really couldn't do circa 1981. Um, I asked Goodelli to listen to that old clip of Dave LaRoche striking out Gorman Thomas. He said, we should give credit to the audio engineer for mixing the sound perfectly without the benefit of today's technology. Um, so my view on this is that TV broadcasts are so good now that there are not many ways in which the stadium or the arena experience is better. But the spontaneous burst of sound that happens when J.R. Smith hits a three, when the Cavs get a defensive stop, um, it's something that television just does not quite capture. And it's more of an art than a science. But I am in favor of opening up those mics and jacking up the crowd noise a little bit. I don't really need to hear Mike Breen. 
I don't really need to hear Mark Jackson in that moment. I want Bedlam to sound a little bit more like Bedlam. Not to go all uh, back in my day, but listening to that clip, I mean, that was a a relatively, I mean, it was an unimportant at bat. And they went nuts. And you do wonder if someone struck someone out at an e- with an EFIS pitch at a Yankees-Brewers game today, whether you'd get the same level of entertainment reaction bedlam, like genuine bedlam that you did then. I don't know. I don't Is know. bedlam inflated? <laughs> Is today's concept, conception of bedlam inflated? We will leave you that to ponder. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and to subscribe or reach out, um, you can go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. You should also check out I Have to Ask. It's a weekly interview show with Slate's Isaac Chotner. Isaac does not mince words. There is no word mincing here. And he gets a great lineup of guests, among them Chuck Schumer, George Saunders, and the Washington Post's White House reporter Ashley Parker. A couple of good episodes to start with are his interviews with Andrew Sullivan and Chris Hayes. You can find them all at slate.com slash ask. For Stefan Fatsis, who does not mince words, I'm Josh Levine. Or Inflate Beckham. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.